In the yard, now known colloquially as the Invincibles Yard at Kilmainham, a large wooden scaffold was erected in the southwest corner. It was built especially for the execution, as the jail did not have its own, hanging by now a rare enough occurrence. Due to a heightened sympathy for the men, it was necessary to sneak in engineers to build the scaffold. It was approximately 12 foot square, with two drop doors in the middle, controlled by a lever. The infamous hangman, William Marwood, would be the man who would operate this lever when the time came. It was Marwood who set out a table of drops, calculated by the weight of the condemned, of between six and ten feet, that together with the careful placing of the knot under the left ear, would guarantee almost instantaneous unconsciousness, with death following very rapidly thereafter. The introduction of the long drop meant an end to the convulsions and struggling that witnesses saw before Marwood's time, when death occurred from strangulation. He was also credited with the invention of the split trap door. In his nine-year career, he hanged eight women and 168 men, including Charlie Peace, the infamous burglar and murderer who terrorised Victorian England in 1879. The executions of the sentenced invincibles were to occur in private. All press were excluded, but the public, who had followed the event from May 6th, were hungry for details. Boosie describes copying the tactics of Fred Gallagher in obtaining yes-no answers to carefully constructed questions and conveying them to a source to guarantee a printable interview. Both he and a journalist from the Central News came up with a series of questions and found a willing official whose job would see him involved with witnessing the executions. Boosie reports that within five minutes of the fatal act, the official would appear through the gates and return the papers, the questions marked yes or no. Through this, they would generate a report to the people on the executions via an eyewitness. Joseph Brady was the first to receive a death sentence. Due to hang on May 14th, he would sleep at night with two warders on beds either side of his. Six more were outside his door to prevent escape. The Monday of his execution was calm and bright, still. Outside the tall walls of Kilmainham gathered thousands of people. Anticipating these crowds, plainclothes officers, police and soldiers were positioned appropriately. Equally prudent measures were taken within the jail. In the morning, Brady attended mass at chapel. He didn't eat and barely spoke except to pray. He wrote a final letter to his mother before Marwood came to prepare him. Brady cooperated, calm and silent. It was just a quarter to eight when the executioner placed his hands upon the culprit. The pinioning of the arms was quickly effected. Brady wore a rough tweed suit in which he had appeared in court and Marwood was obliged to button the front of it tightly in order to make the arm straps secure behind. The unusually broad chest and extraordinary muscular development of Brady making this process apparently one of some difficulty. Brady clutched a Bible on the dreadful walk to the scaffolds. Praying with the cannon, his prayers becoming quicker and more emphatic as he reached the structure. At the base, he paused momentarily, looked briefly upwards and then stepped onto the gallows. He was guided up the scaffold and positioned over the drop doors. A white cotton mask was placed over his head, the noose on top of this. It is reported that Marwood, 
at this very last moment whispered to Brady that it would be well to lift his head and keep himself quite straight. Brady silently complied with this advice. At approximately 8am, Marwood pulled the lever, opening the drop doors. Brady's neck broke. His spinal cord ruptured. The black flag was raised, signalling to the crowd outside that the first Invincible had been executed. The crowd reacted emotionally. Some dropped to their knees, others removed hats. They prayed for Brady's soul. It was law to leave the body hanging for an hour. After this, it would be removed and presented to be viewed by the coroner's inquest. The coroner confirmed death by hanging. Brady had died instantaneously. Brady's mother would later share details of a letter she received from James Carey. It read as follows. To Mr. and Mrs. Brady. No one regrets poor Joe more than I do. His end and untimely date would have been carried out without me. The week before I said one word in the chapel before Mass. Kelly, Joseph and I were together. Kelly had been joking with Brady that Marwood would have a problem breaking his neck with him being so small, but that Brady wouldn't be a problem. So you see, they knew they had to suffer. God will have mercy on Joe's soul. I send you the prayer book he held in his hand on that fatal day with the prayers. When a prisoner, I had the book, a woman done all the harm. I can prove what I say. I will send you all I know about him shortly. Wishing that God may give you the strength to bear your great affliction is the earnest wish of James Carey. Keep this private. Several sources, including Mallon, report that a relative of Thomas Henry Burke, seemingly a nun, visited Brady in the days before his execution. She wanted to ease Brady's suffering by offering forgiveness to him. Brady was moved by this unexpected forgiveness and told her that he had also forgiven everyone as he hoped to be forgiven. Even James Carey? Came the final question almost in a whisper of dreadful apprehension as to the answer. And in a flash, she saw the reply in the condemned man's glittering eye and his clenched fist and terrible agitation. Even James Carey, she pleaded again. But she got no answer, except the eloquent silence and awful expression of hatred that clouded the poor fellow's face. Curly was next to face execution. He was angry about the proceedings of the trial, but anger would give way to emotion as he was visited by his wife and three of their children for the final time. Jane Curley was allowed to cut a lock of her husband's hair on this final visit before breaking down in tears. According to the papers of the time, she had suffered the loss of another family member already, a baby born while Curley was imprisoned. Four days after Brady, Curley took to the scaffold. The arrangements for the interment are in every particular identical with those made in the case of Joseph Brady. The white grave in the southeastern corner of the low yard wherein the scaffold is erected yawns wide and today will be tenanted by a fresh coffin. Like Brady, this execution was accompanied by crowds and security, though much less in numbers. Curly reacted to his plight more emotionally than Brady, but took time nonetheless to turn and thank the governor of the prison and shake his hand as he ascended the steps. 
At 8am, the black flag was raised. Curly was the second invincible dead. His father, who had travelled up from Lawrencetown, Galway, was among the crowd outside the jail. Inconsolable. Masses for the repose of the soul of Curly were celebrated in several churches in the city. Michael Fagan would be executed 10 days later, on the 28th of May. He shared a similar routine to Brady and Curly. Chapel in the morning, prayers, he clung to a crucifix. Awful weather perhaps contributed to a reduction in the crowd size outside the jail, now a mere couple of hundred. Fagan mounted the scaffold. Visible to the side of the wooden structure were now two disturbed mounds of ground where his fellow invincibles lay. Soon, the drop doors opened for him, and he too was on his way to a resting place beside them. In an unfortunate incident for those assembled, the white cloth mask blew away from Fagan's hanging body, his face cut and coloured by the execution, on display as he swung lifelessly, crucifix still clutched in his hands. Some of his family gathered outside the jail. Fagan, illiterate, had been unable to write them any final correspondence, though he had been visited by six family members and a friend while he awaited his execution. Thomas Caffrey was fourth to be executed on the 2nd of June. Only a handful of people gathered outside for him, the only invincible to plead guilty. He showed considerably more anxiety than the three before him, though he took time to thank Marwood and shake hands with Canon Kennedy. Perhaps if he had known what was about to happen, he would not have thanked Marwood at all. Marwood miscalculated. When Caffrey dropped through the wooden scaffold, he was not killed by spinal rupture like the others. He would swing from the rope, being slowly asphyxiated before being buried in the yard with the others. The final execution was that of Tim Kelly on the 9th of June, 1883 following the eventual guilty verdict at his third trial. The night before the execution, Kelly asked that he spend the night in the cell that had been occupied by his close friend, Brady. He sang throughout the night, Salve Regina, and the memory of the past. In a final act of defiance, he threw his glass of porter over the governor, the remnants of his last meal revoked as punishment. In the morning, Following an understandably bad night's sleep, Kelly went through his morning's routine, pale and nervous. He prayed loudly as he was escorted to the gallows. It is reported that a black crow perched upon the flagpole and stayed there for 20 minutes until the final execution was over. The group outside was again back in the thousands, praying for the soul of Tim Kelly as the black flag became visible over the walls of the jail. The fifth and final Invincible was dead by hanging. Still waiting for his pardon from the state, James Carey anxiously stewed in his prison cell. Though he had access to cigars and wine and a bit more freedom than a regular prisoner might, he was nervous that he was not only lacking a written pardon, but that Malin had only spoken to him once in the last 10 weeks. Carey was undoubtedly unaware of how his turning was being received in the outside world. Safe as he was in prison, some members of the public came up with their own way of taking their anger out on the Irish informer. In June, at Allsup's Waxworks exhibition in Liverpool, four Irishmen snuck into a lower apartment where waxworks were displayed. 
Among these groups was one representing the Phoenix Park atrocity, and there was also an effigy of James Carey, the approver. Thinking they were unobserved, they set about the destruction of the group, one man first flinging Carey's head at some of the other figures, and then the others joined in until the models were utterly destroyed. Carey insisted that he had only confirmed what the investigators already knew. He had given them no new information. He got no one arrested. His reported words when asked about becoming an informer were, No! I am not an informer. I am giving evidence for the purpose of saving innocent men's lives. No one was arrested on the information that I gave. When the weapons smuggler, Mrs. Frank Byrne, was arrested and produced in court, Carrie didn't confirm her identity. He claimed this was not the woman going by the name Mrs. Frank Byrne, and she was let go to the annoyance of the state. Providing information to the state seemed to be in the Carey blood. The Freeman's Journal reported that Carey's father was a crown witness in a case where a man was hanged in Nace. His grandfather, similar in Mullingar. His mother was apparently a reliable source of information for the police. She kept a lodging in James Street, and God help you if you spoke out loud about your illegal doings. Arguably, it was Michael Kavanagh who struck the biggest blow to the Invincibles, his turning informer starting a chain reaction that alongside mind games turned Carey too. After all, it seems difficult to imagine turning down an offer to save your own life if you had been tricked into thinking someone else had already turned informer. You don't know what he thought. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the frustrating part. Uh, we can speculate on and you know all we want but we, we actually don't know what he thought we don't know what his motivation is um somebody offers you an escape route you put yourself in that situation i think he's a, he's the sad case among all of these i he didn't intend to inform he did it because he thought he was going with everybody else i don't know if you've ever gone into a cell and command him jail and close the door Oh, well, try it sometime. <laughs> and if they throw a bolt. We did try it on a research trip to Kilmainham, kindly facilitated by the OPW. It was light outside. We knew the door would be unlocked again momentarily. But imagine that sound was potentially the last door locking before the time came for you to be escorted to the scaffolds. The urge to talk would be strong. You go in there and it's dark and it's cold, it's damp. My place is made of limestone, it's, you know, it's, it's just damp. And there's nothing, there's silence really in there. And you can't see, you've no idea what's going on. Imagine being there for a few days and you're hearing things going on outside and scurrying around. You look out through the peephole, you see people going into a cell with notebooks, etc., and, you know, stenographers going in and, and they're coming out. And you're thinking, damn, am I the fool here, you know? Everyone else has done it, not me. Um, they might get remission and I won't, you know. And I mean, you're, you're, you're staring death in the face. You know you're going to die if you stay quiet. But if you turn, you might get a jail sentence. You know, and that's what happens. Or you might be able to do a deal as he did and get taken out of the country. Out of the country was exactly where James Carey was headed. His brother Peter had already left at the end of June and the Freeman's Journal reported in August that he was sighted in Montreal. 
another paper reported his presence in Australia. Detective Sergeant Patrick McIntyre, who was in charge of looking after Maggie Carey and the children, later disclosed that Susan Carey did in fact go to Australia with Peter, but they were recognised by some people who had been neighbours with them in Dublin. They relocated to another colony where Susan died. In April 1884, newspapers reported that Joe Brady's brother, Matthias, had travelled to Paris after hearing rumours from nationalist circles in America that Peter was hiding in the French capital. He was aided in his search by a group known as the Paris Invincibles, but to no avail, quitting the capital without Carey blood on his hands. Rumours were already spreading outside the prison that James Carey had been snuck out, disguised and under the cover of darkness. In reality, he was despairing in his cell. If you've been to Kilmainham and done the tour, at some point you'll find yourself in something of a bare living room, which Parnell used. Carey was held in the cell opposite this, in a room allegedly once used to hold famed Irish rebel Robert Emmett and what seemed to be Parnell's bedroom. It's a large room and more spacious than some rooms you would pay good money to live in in Dublin City at present. But Carey was growing more eager to leave by the day. There was still the threat that he could be executed too. He had implicated himself so deeply in the conspiracy. Malin would eventually come from. Carey was cleaned and shaved. His destination withheld from him for the time being. Malin, never a fan of Carey's, would later describe the prisoner to Boosie on that day. He was clean-shaven, and his kinky hair was cut short and parted to the side instead of being divided down the centre as of old. He was a foreboding, objectionable-looking person, with repulsively low forehead, on which the hair grew almost down to his eyebrows, and a large, besotted red nose. The removal of moustache and beard had disclosed a peculiarly animal mouth, that added to the sinister, cutthroat suggestiveness of the whole. Malin and Carey left the prison in a cab. As they made their way towards Dublin Castle, down Thomas Street, they passed a small tobacco shop of Jane Curley. Carey blessed himself, saying, God save the soul of Dan Curley. Malin was stunned. At the castle, Malin provided Carey with a gun and some money. Back in a new cab, Carey turned the gun on Malin and threatened to kill him. Madeline informed him that he had his finger on the trigger of a gun in his pocket and opened the door to let Carey out. He bluffed Carey, telling him that Carey's gun was loaded with blanks instead. It was in fact loaded with real ammunition, but Carey, aware of people beginning to pay attention to him, lowered the gun and claimed to have been joking. Carey would meet his family in England, where they had been disguised and protected by armed guards for some time. They had been protected for weeks by Sergeant Patrick McIntyre of Scotland Yard and Maggie Carey was reportedly so pleased with his service that she gifted him with her husband's gold watch chain. On the 5th of July 1883, the Careys were reunited and heading to the Cape of Good Hope aboard the steamer Kinfawn's Castle. They assumed the surname Power to avoid detection from fellow passengers, but their detection would only be avoided for so long. On board the steamer was Donegal man Patrick O'Donnell and his girlfriend Susan Gallagher. On their way to South Africa to make his fortune in the mines, O'Donnell and Gallagher struck up a close friendship with the Careys. Sometime into the trip, 
the steamer docked at Cape Town, and Carey became caught up in a drunken argument, protecting his homeland from abusive comments by another man. The barman was convinced that this man, Power, was in fact James Carey. When word of Carey's removal from the prison got out, the newspapers published articles speculating as to his destination. Alongside these articles was a portrait of Carey. The barman showed this portrait to another passenger on the Kinfawns castle. Despite the change in hair, the similarity was obvious. This passenger, Cubbett, took the portrait and finding O'Donnell ashore, showed it to him. O'Donnell and the Carey family had by now taken leave of the Kinfawns castle, moving onto a smaller boat, the Melrose. Aboard the Melrose, Carey kept a lower profile, aware that the press were speculating on his movements and printing portraits. On the evening of July 29th, Carey surfaced from his room and joined O'Donnell in the ship bar. His son Thomas and Susan Gallagher were present. At first, the parties laughed and conversed in a friendly manner. Eventually, O'Donnell accused James Power of being the informer James Carey. Denying this accusation, Carey jumped up, likely reaching for his pistol, but O'Donnell was ready for him and shot Carey three times. Carey yelled out, Maggie, I'm shot, after being hit with the first bullet and staggered away before being shot twice more. Maggie Carey embraced her husband as he fell. Carey was dead in moments. O'Donnell arrested by crewmen. Carey was buried in an unmarked grave at Port Elizabeth. His murder was an embarrassment for the British government, who had gone to lengths to get their star informer safely away. The general public, however, were elated, particularly the nationalist crowd. Thousands took to the streets of Dublin and beyond to commemorate his death. Effigies were burned. Bonfires raged. Celebrations weren't confined to Dublin, with people in England and America joining in. Allegations that O'Donnell had planned to assassinate Carey from the start, following him onto the steamer, ran rampant but were unfounded. O'Donnell had in fact booked his ticket for the steamer ship a whole month before it would be decided to send Carey there. Nevertheless, he was celebrated by the masses for his role in ridding the world of Carey, the infamous informer. Though O'Donnell claimed he had killed Carey in self-defence, it didn't look too good that he had the portrait of him in his luggage nor the two of the shots were while Carey was staggering away. Following some discourse regarding where O'Donnell's trial would take place, given the crime was at sea, it was eventually decided that he would be tried at London Central Criminal Court. Arguments of self-defence wouldn't save him here. On December the 1st, a jury found O'Donnell guilty of the murder of Carey. Furious, O'Donnell yelled as he was removed from the court. Three cheers for Ireland! Goodbye to the United States! To hell with the bastard British government and the perjurers who found me guilty. Pleas for his life were made from every corner of the globe, including America, where he was a naturalised citizen. The playwright Victor Hugo, famous for Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, pled with Queen Victoria on his behalf. All calls for clemency fell flat. O'Donnell was executed in Newgate Prison, London, on December the 17th, 1883. In 1902, he was reinterred in the London City Cemetery, exact spot unknown. In Glasnevin Cemetery, a cenotaph was erected in his honour. It reads, In memory of Patrick O'Donnell, 
who heroically gave up his life for Ireland in London, England, 17th of December, 1883. Not tears, but prayers for the dead who died for Ireland. There are several articles and writings online giving a lengthier overview of Patrick O'Donnell and the trial, including the testimony of Maggie and Thomas Carey. For those interested, the book The Invincibles by Dr. Shane Kenna dedicates several chapters to him and the end of Carey's life. Five of the Invincibles had been executed. Carey buried in South Africa. The majority of those arrested received a sentence of anywhere up to 10 years penal servitude. Other key players would die in later years. James Fitaris, aka Skin the Goat, was sentenced to life but only served 15 years. This lack of pursuit of the death sentence might reflect a reticence on behalf of the DMP to reveal that Skin was a regular driver for G Division and possibly picked up all convenient manners of intelligence while merely performing his day job. He attempted to start over in America upon his release. America didn't want him. He was forced back to Dublin and would work as a watchman for Dublin Corporation. He died of ill health at the age of 66. He's buried in Glasnevin Cemetery next to his wife. Perhaps due to the many mentions of the man in Joyce's Ulysses, is the most commonly known member of the group. There are two plaques to him in Glasnevin. One for him, the other he shares with his fellow Invincibles. Brady, Curley, Kelly, Fagan, Caffrey, and Poole. Michael Kavner drank himself to death in the years after the trial. He seemed eager to purge all memories of his involvement in the events of 1882. In John Theodore Tussaud's book, The Romance of Madame Tussauds, it is written that a representative from the famous wax museum arrived in Ireland and bought both the car and pony that Kavner had used that day in the Phoenix Park. Kavna drove the route he had taken when escaping the park one last time, an act not requested by the representative. The car was broken down into pieces and wrapped up for the night boat. It was reconstructed when it reached England and placed in a room adjacent to the Chamber of Horrors. Portraits of Burke and Cavendish hung nearby. The car was eventually sold to a private buyer. The pony, put up in stables belonging to the exhibition, died soon after arrival in England. Henry Rowles died in March 1883 during the hearings. While in custody, he suffered a serious epileptic fit and collapsed in the exercise yard of Kilmainham. He fell into a coma and it was almost a month before he passed. His funeral procession would cross the same bridge where he had once failed, deliberately or not, to signal Forster's approach. He was buried in Glasnevin, men in his procession marching in military order. Alongside Carey and Curley in the original four were Edward McCaffrey and James Mullet. Both received 10 years penal servitude in Downpatrick and were released at different points in 1891. James Mullet would take time following his release to visit other imprisoned invincibles. In 1894, stopping into Maryborough to check on Joseph Mullet, James Fitzharris and Lawrence O'Hanlon. He made a point of speaking to the press regarding how badly Irish prisoners were treated while he was in Downpatrick, being thrown into solitary confinement for merely nodding at each other. Particular concern was expressed by all prisoners for Joe Mullet, unrelated to James, who had persistent aches and bad asthma. They expected to find him dead nearly every day. James Mullet died in May 1915. 
The Invincibles weren't the only ones on the scaffold to die that year. The death of William Marwood occurred in September 1883. There were fleeting accusations that surviving Invincibles had something to do with it. Vengeance for the five hanged men. In consequence of various rumours that have gained currency to the effect that the Irish Invincibles are in some way responsible for the illness and death of Marwood, the local police have deemed it advisable to inform the coroner of the circumstances of the case. The police are in possession of the whole of the facts attending his death. Death was ultimately determined to be from a short illness. No matter your thoughts on the Invincibles, it's interesting to see how informers were treated with more revulsion in the late 19th century than the perpetrators of the crimes being informed upon. In this case, it wasn't limited to just the Invincibles, but to some of those who spoke against them. Independent witnesses were also set up with new identities and rejected by friends and family following their stand against the Invincibles. Alice Carroll, an eyewitness to the attack on Dennis Field, was attacked by her own mother following the trials. The newspapers reported that the old woman sprung upon her in a fury of passion, tore her hair, denounced her as an informer and disowned her. Alice was one of many of the Crown witnesses given money to start a new life and relocated to another country. Inspector Mallon died in 1915, buried back home in Armagh. The old churchyard is up under Sleeve Gully in there. It's, it's rather poignant. The grave itself is there. He clearly put the gravestone in himself for his parents because it's just a, a line added for himself. Um, and, it, it, you know, I, I can't remember what it says, but it, it's just um, John Mallon, Justice of the Peace. It doesn't say anything more. There lies the grim notion that it wasn't just the bones of Mallon that lie in his grave in Armagh. Following the execution of Brady, the Kilmainham physician ordered that his body be beheaded and his brain taken to the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin to be studied. Brady's head was wrapped in cloth and handed over to the unfortunate John Mallon. Mallon met Boussy outside the jail as he headed for the Royal College. Pale white, Mallon rushed past Boussy yelling, don't speak to me. Initially hurt by Mallon's dismissal of him, Boussy would only find out in later years that his friend was carrying the head of Brady under his arm as he passed by. That wouldn't be the only bit of Brady that Mallon would carry with him. It was a bone in the neck at the top of the spine that Dr. Cart, who was the prison doctor, cut out and gave to Mallon. And he used to keep it in his waistcoat pocket, which is rather macabre. You must remember also, uh, he was a Victorian. And the Victorians could be rather macabre. You know, the old thing of a gentleman's study with a human skull on the desk um, as part of the, of the accouchements of, 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 the, of the desk. You'd an inkwell, you've got your leather pad, you've got your dispatch box, you've got your reading case, you've got your, your letter rack, and then blow me down, you'd a human skull on the table. It just became a part and parcel of him until he eventually retired. And when he was an old man, and, and the, 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 the poor old parish priest, you know, said, you know, John, you know, I, I really think, you know, we should, we should bury that. And, and he eventually agreed to it. So poor old, part of poor old um, Brady is, 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 is buried up in, in South Armagh in the, in the old churchyard. Some of Brady might lie in Armagh. Some of him lies in Dublin, 
onto the big slabs of stone in Kilmainham. We visited the yard during research for this podcast. It's normally an area excluded from tours, the jail preferring to focus on the more popular narrative of Irish history, the 1916 Rising. The yard is of medium size, connected to other yards on its level, all divided by low walls. Some stairs bring you to a raised area, looking down over the Invincibles yard. On the high grey walls that stop anyone from getting in or out, there's a memorial plaque to the Invincibles. And somewhere below those grey stones are bodies. Five of them, though one without a skull. Their punishment to remain in the grounds of the jail for eternity. Unless the National Graves Association and their Invincibles reinterment campaign is successful. As of the time this episode is released, their endeavours continue. The intention is to exhume the bodies of the five men and reinter them in Glasnevin. There's mixed feelings on this matter. Well, I, I wouldn't want to lie in a, a grave in Kilmainham. It, it was a bleak, nasty place. I certainly wouldn't want my bones to... If I had an opportunity to have them moved, then I would certainly move my bones. So I would probably be in favour of going to Glasnevin. Presumably, the thinking behind that is that they would then become a, a scene of commemoration. And I think that would be unfortunate. Uh, it would give the wrong signal. It's not a nice thought to think of anybody being interred forever in a jail, but I would be appalled if the new grave, if you like, of the Invincibles became a scene of commemoration or of pilgrimage. These are not people who should be commemorated and celebrated, but would I give them a decent Christian burial? Of course. Why would you deny that? One of the instigators behind this campaign was the late historian Dr Shane Kenna, who sadly passed at too young an age in 2017. His book The Invincibles, published posthumously in 2019 by the O'Brien Press. Well, um, it, it really started with Shane. I mean, he was, he was on about this and he was banging on about this for quite a while. And he constantly, even though he had been refused, he was still talking about it. The National Graves Association um, took this on board and have set up a subcommittee uh, of members of the National Graves Association and others. I'm one of the others. Um, Shane's mother's on it. Um, and some of us are on it because we were friends of Shane's primarily. Uh, and that's why we went on and to, to remember him by trying to do something he wanted to achieve. What we're trying to do is two things. We need formal official approval and then we need the OPW's approval. The OPW says no, but at the same time if the government or the state says yes then the OPW will bow to that without a question. An issue that has been raised as an obstacle to the campaign is that of locating them. If located, how can it be determined that the remains of other buried bodies are undisturbed in the process? The graveyard they're in, that low down yard, uh, which was also the execution area, uh, that was a graveyard. And it had been a graveyard since the jail opened in 1796. I mean, to be fairly blunt about it, this is a mound of ground with rotting corpses in it, next to a building with a lot of people in it, in pretty putrid conditions, very little air movement, etc. in them. You don't want that. It's unhealthy, no matter what. So you pour quicklime over the bodies. Theoretically, what quicklime will do is rot the flesh off the bodies quickly, and that's healthy. It doesn't always do that, 
But what it will do is encase the bodies. It will form a sort of sarcophagus around the body almost, a, a, a cake around them, a cake of quicklime around them, which will protect the body and keep it in. It may preserve rather than destroy. And I say the bones don't necessarily rot away on this. It depends. If I had my way, I'd go in with ground radar on the off chance that they are easily identifiable. I mean, you, ground radar is looking for disturbed ground. The problem is that that whole thing is disturbed. But you might just be able to, you might be looking. We have one map that shows them buried around at the walls in a very distinct spot. If they're buried there, uh, they're not necessarily deep because there are flagstones on top, so they don't need to be too deep. If you find them, then it's easy enough to dig up the flagstones, dig them up and take them out. If you don't find them and you can't identify them, then you have to do what they did in London. Take the whole lot. Dig up that whole area, take it out and move it to a common grave in Glasnevin or somewhere else and say, in here among them are the Invincibles. There's another body that Mihal would love to see reinterred and is working towards at present, Joseph Poole. In June 1883, two indictments against Poole, the first for the murder of a Constable Cox in Abbey Street in 1882, and the second for firing a Cox with the intent to maim him, were dropped, and Poole was discharged. Poole, pleasantly surprised, left the courthouse. He would remain free for mere seconds. As he stepped into Green Street, Acting Inspector Scully of the Detective Police tipped Poole on the shoulder and informed him he had a warrant for his arrest for the willful murder of John Kenny in several Place. Poole made no remark and walked with the officer across to Green Street Police Station, where he was placed in the cells. Poole was charged with the murder of informer John Kenny. His guilt in this murder seems unlikely, as we covered back in Episode 4. But the DMP wanted Poole and if they could get the charges to stick for Kenny's murder, they would take it. He's eventually executed. He was taken to Richmond Bridewell and he's hanged there by an unknown hangman um, who botched the job. A hangman from Belfast, hooded and anonymous, miscalculated the length of the rope. Poole dropped through the trapdoor, but instead of jerking and swinging, the rope remained taut Poole's toes touching the ground. Jail officials and a doctor looked on in horror. Look of horror, apparently, um, over the um, hangman, hangman's face, and he doesn't know what to do. And the doctor runs down under the gallows, grabs Joe, wraps his arms around him, and takes his feet off the ground so that he's pulling Joe down. The hangman then pulls the rope up, and they choke Joe to death. And there's a huge problem with this. The hangman is, by law, allowed to hang people, to kill them. The doctor isn't. So, it's murder. It's not an execution. This is murder. Unquestionably, this is murder. Poole was only one of two executions to take place in the jail, now Griffith College. He was buried within the grounds and forgotten about for around 15 years when the jail was being transferred to the army and his remains were stumbled upon. Joe Poole's father has died in the meantime and Joe's stepmother appealed for his body to be given back so father and son could be buried near each other. And according to the newspapers, I've read this in the newspaper, they say that the appeal will be granted, it is always granted in this, in this scenario. In this case, it's not granted. 
they bury him again and they don't mark the grave this time we don't know where he is and you have to ask the question why didn't they give the body back like they normally would i can tell you why they didn't give the body back it's only 15 years later the body is still fairly intact at this stage it would have been exposed it would have been clear to anybody with medical knowledge that he had not been hanged that is second and third vertebrae had not separated by the rope which is what should happen snapping the spine but it would be clear because his uh, trachea now would be crushed that he had been choked to death any potential review of the body would have contradicted a post-mortem filed by the doctor possibly still alive in determining cause of death as hanging in accordance with the law the doctor could be found guilty of forgery lying and technically murder Mihol believes that in order to protect the doctor, the return of Poole's body was refused. Regardless of this, there's still just one primary thing that he and Poole's family want done. I want him removed from there, but I don't know where he is. Uh, the family want him removed, and that one group of people have tried to do it. They, they went to him with ground radar and they checked out where they say he is, and they found a spot and they went in, they dug it up and he wasn't there. I don't believe it's where they say where they were saying he is. Well, obviously he's not now, but I don't believe he's even in the yard they're saying he is. I think he's much nearer the front gate. I still think he should be out because the man is innocent. Um, I, I was I would argue that, as I have in another case, that in the Invincibles case, that the his sentence was complete the day that ceased to be a jail. A plaque had been erected for Poole in Griffith College but was removed during renovations and construction of new buildings. It was restored afterwards and a small ceremony took place. Poole is named on another plaque in the city, that in Glasnevin for James Fitzharris, along with the names of other Invincibles. Whether he was Invincible or not, he was executed for other reasons. Uh, so to lump him in with the five uh, Invincibles who were executed for one particular crime uh, is wrong. Yet it does get him remembered. It does associate him with other people who were acting for a better Ireland at the time. Across Dublin city exist physical tributes to the events of 1882. Plaques where bodies are buried. Plaques where bodies should be buried. Across where bodies once lay. To this day, there are two crosses cut into the grass verge where the each of, each of the two were, uh, were killed. Uh, and that is maintained. It's quite difficult to find. It's very uh, discreet, uh, but it's there. Do you know who maintains it? The, the story was that, that um, the family of someone who was around and witnessed the event uh, originally cut the, the uh, crosses into the ground. In subsequent generations, the uh, family tended it and uh, kept the cross from filling in because obviously the, 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 the grass would grow over it. I think nowadays it's probably done by the OPW. In 2019, on the 6th of May, a group of people, including descendants, gathered at the Stony White Cross in Phoenix Park. They were there to commemorate the Invincibles. However, this cross is there to remember Burke and Cavendish. Perhaps a lack of an accessible burial site forces this cross to be the most meaningful location to gather. Either way, 
no matter where people gather, it's clear they are willing and eager to remember and to spread the word about these Irish nationalists that many forget. I think people who are interested in Irish history know who the Invincibles were, but I don't think the word invincible uh, has had a resonance, you know, like, like um, you know, uh, Collins's squad would, uh, would have had. And, and the reality is that there's not much difference between the squad and, and the Invincibles. They set out to murder people and to assassinate people, and they, they, they succeeded in doing it. And interestingly, the leaders in 1916, uh, when they talk about uh, uh, their inspiration, they don't include the Invincibles. Even the IRB and the Republican movement in 1916 are not claiming descent from the Invincibles. What they did was beyond the pale, if I may mix my metaphors. Should we approve? Well, I don't think we should. We need to remember it, of course, because it happened, and you can't deny that it, it happened. But I don't think there's any question of celebrating it. These are embarrassments, they're stains on the national character, in my view. And perhaps we need to remember it in the spirit of repentance. A tricky one to commemorate, you know, or to celebrate, sorry, which is most of our commemorations tend to be celebrations in some way. It's a tricky one to celebrate. Difficult for some to remember these proudly because you will get arguments against you if you do this. You know, the free state that we're in at the moment it didn't just spring clean out of nowhere. It, it sprang out of a huge amount of violence on every side. It's got a very dirty past. We're lucky we've managed to come out of it as cleanly as we have. Very, very few countries have done so. And while we still have some unrest, for the you know, major part, we're, we're a peaceful area and we can discuss these things. I think it's fair that we do it, but we can't be selective in what we discuss. We have to discuss it all. We need to know our history, whether we agree with the events and people involved or not. Walking around Dublin city, there are the odd plaques dedicated to the Invincibles. In Kilmainham, some of them lie, a plaque over the yard in which they're buried, for now or just the time being. Regardless of the presence of bodies, a walk through Glasnevin will show you the etched names of James Fitzharris, Henry Rowles, Tim Kelly, Patrick O'Donnell, and though some will get annoyed at the inclusion of their victim, Thomas Henry Burke, among others. Attempts to keep them in people's memories are scattered citywide, nationwide, in 2017, the Michael Fagan Fenian Society held a commemoration in Fagan's hometown of Collinstown, County Westmeath, for Fagan and the other men executed and Joseph Poole. A plaque for Michael Fagan at the commemoration reads, Executed 28th of May 1883 at Kilmainham Jail by British Forces of Occupation. You'll hear references to the Invincibles in popular culture too. Ulysses is riddled with them. There are a multitude of songs and poems. There was a play by Hugh Hunt and Frank O'Connor that played at the Abbey in October 1937. Every so often, on the anniversary of May 6th, some newspapers run articles about the day. We're not the first podcast to discuss the group and likely won't be the last. In 2019, in the Mansion House, there was the first of many book launches for the posthumously released book by Shane Kenna, titled The Invincibles, The Phoenix Park Assassinations and the Conspiracy that Shook an Empire. It's a great read and like this podcast, wasn't the first book on the group and won't be the last. The common desire that all these forms of media share 
is a desire to tell the story of the Invincibles, to remember them, to introduce them to a new audience. And the next time you spy one of these plaques, stumble over the white stony crawls in Phoenix Park, stroll through Castle Yard, or order a pint in a pub that the Invincibles frequented, hopefully you'll be able to dispense a tidbit of knowledge or two to whoever you're with, regardless of whether you're on the side of Malin or the Invincibles, or neither. It's history. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Marianne O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Michal O'Dwivlin, Felix Larkin and Donald McCracken. Actors in this episode are Oshin DeLonga, Paul Butler Lennox, Morgan C. Jones, Declan Rudden. Thanks to Brian Crowley in the OPW for facilitating a private tour of Kilmainham for this episode. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates. <laughs>